Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Boxing Day, December 26th, 2022. Okay. You're looking at me like I'm the big Boxing Day guy. I don't know anything about no. Boxing Day. But well, you, you know it's when... What, the British uh, celebrate? Exchange gifts or something. Yeah. Who knows what goes on over there. Anyway, I mean, it's a federal holiday here today. Yeah, because Christmas is on a Sunday. You know what? There was an article I didn't mention that uh, people, uh, priests, ministers were concerned that no one was going to be in church on Sunday. Even though it was Christmas. I said, gee, it's Christmas. Wouldn't everybody show up? This is what I know. I'm Jewish. And the answer is no. People don't show up on that situation because they're home opening presents. Opening Christmas, yeah. yeah. So some of them were skipping the service or doing a special service Saturday night or something like that. Yeah. How do you like that? Right. So Christmas on Sunday throws everything out of whack. No, you know, they're probably making too big a fuss of that. You know, when I was growing up, even, uh, you know, Presbyterians in Maryland generally went to the Christmas Eve service. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even if it wasn't, there was be a Christmas Eve service, like 7, 7.30, not even midnight. I know there's midnight mass and there's midnight services, um, but... uh, Christmas Day service was never the yeah, big Yeah, but that's deal. my point. My point is that you always have a Sunday service, and, and, uh, and it brings people in on Sunday. But if you put no, it, nobody goes to Sunday service. It's like the anymore. NFL playing on nobody Saturday. Goes to church anymore. Oh, that, that is not true. That's not true. According to the New York Times, it's not. There are some. Oh, people, the New York Times. Yes, oh, some people well, go to church. Some people go to church. No, it's a real problem. Anyway, people are not going to. Church. We had a very nice Christmas. Uh, you know, we had uh, the Hazi Bear was here. With his family, well, he invited his parents right. too. We we had a plethora of celebrations because yes. it was Hanukkah. Right. So um, Christmas Eve was, you know, traditionally we do a whole fondue thing, but we also had latkes. Yeah. We also had the lighting of the candles, which Hazi loved. Yeah. And uh, that's our grandson. And um, then uh, and Sadie's here, and right. uh, so it's uh, festive. We have we have people. And then here. Sunday was the usual. Sunday, the Christmas Day. Christmas Day. We, more festivities. We had a good more time. More food. And guess what? What? Turns out, Hazi, one and a half, likes chocolate souffle. Yeah. He was skeptical at first. Yeah. You know, I guess because it's hot. But he got into it yes. in a big way. In about two seconds. It didn't take much. No, it was the usual. It was like, uh, you know, just uh, almost comic how normal, you know, what does Hazi like about Christmas? Opening the gifts. Yes, he likes opening gifts. He doesn't care what's in them. No, really. he wants opening to open right. the boxes. So how classic is that? Yeah, well. So living up to all expectations. Well, what is he? he's 18 months old. That's what that's what he does. Yeah, he's doing it. He's, just the way the 18 month old yeah, he's, he's taking leaps and bounds uh, in terms of talking and everything. It's uh, it's impressive. It's impressive. So the other thing I did notice I should have mentioned to you was, um, again, you know, people say, Christmas, some people think of Dickens and you say, well, maybe that is kind of diminishing over time. There was an article in the Times and in the Journal about Dickens. Dickens still hovers over Christmas. Dickens is the figure. It's all about Dickens. It surprises me that people still... Talk like that, but uh, I guess it's true. And the one, the Maureen Dowd article I have in front of me, I'm not going to really quote it or anything. It's the same stuff you always hear. I mean, I like it. I do read the Christmas Carol every once in a while. Some people do. It's extremely well written. But what's interesting about the the quote from Maureen Dowd 
is, well, the quote, she, she uh, talks to Mitch Glazer, fellow who co-wrote the movie Scrooge with Bill Murray. And she's citing all the different variations on uh, on Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And, and his quote is, Dickens hits us with a setup, regret, loss, mistakes, missed love, wasted life, and then the punchline. It's not too late. In every version from his novella to Mr. Magoo, I always get emotional when Scrooge is reborn. <laughs> so not only Dickens being remembered, but Mr. Magoo in the New York Times. we got to go with that. Talk about your classics. Yes, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Well, Carol. out in California. I went out in California yeah. to check on Pepper and the celebration of, of uh, Hanukkah. That's the great thing. Eight days. You yeah. cover a lot of ground. And uh, as part of our Hanukkah celebration, we did watch... The Grinch, the oh, really? original animated Grinch. That's right. And you were and, reading the book to her, and too. And I was reading the book to her. So she was into the book. She mm-hmm. was always, she'd be walking around muttering to, her, to herself, awful idea, wonderful, awful idea, which is <laughs> a quote from the book. And uh, she was mesmerized by the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that classic has been introduced. Well, that's and uh, you know, she's on her know, way to Mr. Magoo. Know, yeah, on the way to Mr. You can Magoo. get, you can stream Mr. Magoo. I have looked into it. Okay, well, I'm sure we will. The question of at what age does it begin to resonate? Ah, uh, they got a few years. Yeah, a few years. Okay. So, anything else about your trip that's worth talking about? Probably. Uh, in California. Yeah. Yes, California was a lot of fun, and uh, they're by the water, so we went to a you know boat parade oh. at night where the boats go by. And they're all you know, decorated with lights. Mm-hmm. And there must have been some outer space theme because a lot of the boats seem to have aliens yeah. on them uh, celebrating Christmas. All right. Uh, so that was fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of decorations, lights and stuff out there. So it felt very festive. And it was chilly enough that it felt festive. Oh, it's not chilly and, enough. Come uh, on. You know. And again, uh, Hanukkah was... Uh, great the candles were great the lighting of the candles the eating of the uh gelt the chocolate gelt was a hit and uh latkes were a hit with pepper well the other thing you told me about with pepper was the advent calendar chocolate that's not a hanukkah thing that's actually a christmas thing. i'm aware of that yeah yeah so uh she would open the door every day well that's the idea that's what you do yes i know but it's funny because she can't count so she was, uh, and yet she said to me after I left. Yeah, she she said one day they had they were late doing uh, the advent calendar, opening the door and finding the chocolate, and she said so. She called me up on the phone so I could do it with them. Yeah, across the miles. All right, and uh, she said we're looking for number nineteen, and her daddy said no 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 nineteen was yesterday, we're looking for twenty today. Yeah. But I thought that was impressive that she remembered they, yesterday they had to find 19. She just she thought 19 was the magic word. Well, for the for the day. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so... On the other hand, uh, um, Nico, Hazi's mom, yeah. said, ah, the problem with Advent is the calendar. That <laughs> chocolate is terrible. <laughs> you got to move up in quality. Pepper doesn't know. There are expensive chocolate advent calendars. Well, I can see but, where uh, I can see where this is going. I think it, DIY it, DIY 
is the way to go with that. You're going to make your own calendar? Buy some, well, buy some nice chocolates and put put them in little boxes with numbers or something. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. You'll work on that. That's that's my idea. Yeah, okay. That's my tips from Tammy. I think this is a business you can start. We, we could be selling uh, high-quality chocolate. Has- businesses doing that. <laughs> Don't, don't worry. But I also went to uh, down to Washington, D.C. Yeah. Because I usually go down and then drive up with Sadie mm-hmm. uh, to Pennsylvania and uh, keep her company in the traffic on Route 95. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a part of that, I usually I take the train down. I love that train. I love going on the Amtrak mm-hmm. uh, from uh, New Jersey to Washington. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it for 500 years. And... Um, I go to the National Gallery, which I always say is a great uh, place to get the holiday spirit mm-hmm. because they do have nice decorations. I thought it was less than they often have, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it was quite beautiful with uh, you know plants and trees and things, and uh, some great exhibitions uh, as usual, including uh, one about uh, John Singer Sargent in Spain. Which I had seen ads for, and I poo-pooed. I was not really interested. It turned out to be fascinating mm-hmm. and enjoyable and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Also, we talked about the Vittore Carpaccio last week or the week before, and uh, I think we talk about her every week. But no, yes. it's a guy. 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 <laughs> An artist. Yes. Italian artist. Carpaccio. Uh, yeah. Like, yes. From the 16th century. Right. And uh, I saw that exhibition. It was good. It was good. It was, uh, you know, um, always uh, more interesting to see art in person. But there was also, there was a small um, exhibition called Conversations. Carrie Mae Weems and the Shaw 54th Regiment Memorial by... Uh, Augustus St. Gunn. So who's Carrie Mae Weems? That sounds familiar. Uh, she's an African-American uh, artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she's more installation-oriented mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know what, I do, I do see art as a conversation. So it uh, engaged me. And it was, it was very interesting. She was responding to looking at, you know, the... The 54th the Regiment, Shaw's 54th Regiment Memorial honors uh, uh, Shaw's Regiment of African-American soldiers mm-hmm. um, from the Civil War. And uh, that was installed in Boston in the uh, 1890s. This uh, on display, the National Gallery, is a plaster cast, a gilded plaster cast. Still, you know, life-size, very impressive. It's a combination of a giant equestrian Mm -hmm. uh, style sculpture with the bas-relief of the African-American soldiers in the background. Mm -hmm. Very individualized. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a quite impressive, poignant um, memorial. And it was the first civic memorial uh, to... uh, pay homage to the heroism of African-American soldiers. Uh, and, and so she was, she responded, her response or her conversation with that sculpture mm-hmm. uh, actually was based on, uh, you know, the great uh, migration 
the uh, post um, reconstruction um, immigration of blacks from the south to the north mm -hmm. uh, looking for work you know mm -hmm. that transition out of the um, sort of agricultural um, work in the south to industrial Mm -hmm. work in the north etc and um using photographs and you know um quotations poetry etc and it, you know it's uh i think it works i think it's interesting i think it creates uh, a dialogue of uh, the roles of uh, um, african americans blacks in uh, the u.s over time in the civil war mm -hmm. on so uh, that was enjoyable okay and anyway, so I had a great time. Went to a actually very nice uh, Indian restaurant mm -hmm. right down in the same just a block and a half from the National Gallery, uh, Rasika. And I'll talk more about Indian food in a bit. Okay. Right? This is where you had dinner with Sadie, or yeah, oh, okay, yeah, it was. Horrendous weather. Yeah. That big uh, cyclone bomb right. storm yeah. was coming through, and it was pouring, freezing rain. And I was traipsing about uh, Washington with my umbrella and my backpack, mm. going from gallery to from the Union Station to the yeah. gallery to the restaurant, etc. But I did it. All right. Good work. All right. Uh, well, okay, moving along. We have a lot of ground to cover. You, you had something about uh, this homeowner's dispute that you were riled up about. I think you were riled up about it. No, I wasn't riled up about it. I was intrigued because the uh, New York Times, the, I guess it was on the front page of the New York Times a couple weeks ago, and uh, in a fight over lawn and order, a nature-friendly yard prevails. So it was a story about uh, Janet and Jeff Crouch, who, uh, long story short, got a letter from their homeowners association they're living in maryland columbia maryland and uh, they get a letter from the homeowners association saying you know they uh have got to uh um get rid of their yard mm -hmm. and put a nice lawn in yeah or get out sure. and that uh, happens so uh well does it happen? Well, I guess it does happen. I'm not saying it should happen, but I'm telling you it does happen. Anyway, they they were part of a growing movement yeah. of, you know, lawns are not especially good for the environment. Right. We've talked about this. We've talked about places, you know, whether it's uh, encouraging or discouraging wildlife or water usage or whatever. Yeah. Um, the all-American, you know, turf lawn is not necessarily a good thing. And these people were embracing that idea and uh, planting their yard in such a way with flowers and you know that would encourage uh, insects etc and pollination and you know different shrubberies and uh, you know they um, got uh, you know uh, this order to improve there was all all kinds of back and forth with a neighbor mm -hmm. the neighbor had apparently they weren't even aware that their neighbor was so riled up about all this you know um in person he didn't seem to complain much but uh, to the homeowners association he declared you know they were you know ruining his uh, peace of mind mm -hmm. he was unable to live next to this jungle uh next door and so they said um they actually said, no, we're not going to <laughs> comply with this. 
and they ended up filing a complaint uh, against the homeowners association. The homeowners association uh, countersued and so forth. But uh, they also they enlisted sort of the support of every environmental group they could get you know connect with, mm-hmm. and they had some connections uh, in that um, regard because uh, I think uh, Janet Crouch's sister is you know part of. Um, is a mover and a shaker in that world. Anyway, the, I don't know, some state representative came to them and said, would you mind if we actually um, put together a, I guess, a law about this? Yeah. And so the the result was a law in Maryland kind of um, stripping the homeowners association of this kind of power to tell Mm -hmm. uh, the homeowners exactly uh, what their lawn has to look like, Mm -hmm. um, diminish it to some extent. So eventually there was was a suit and a countersuit from the homeowners association and they came to an agreement at a certain point or they worked something out where the, um, the crouches are going to keep the majority of their habitat, the way they've created it, but they need, they have to put, they're going to do like a little bit of a, a lawn border along the front and mm. along the side, along their neighbor who's complaining. Well, I, I'd be, I, I don't think a law works, honestly. I'd have to read the article. I, I don't know what law they could have come up with, but uh, I, I understand. Well, what it had to do with the home. No, I understand. I, I just don't think they, Yeah, I, I get it. But I mean, I don't, I don't know that this, this state has the power to tell homeowners associations you know, here's what you can do. Well, that's why good. should homeowners associations have the Because power, it's yeah. a contract. Because uh-huh. when you buy the property, you sign uh, an agreement that says you will buy it, but the homeowner association does. So, Well, obviously, this is an article that you should have looked into, no, not just, me. But that's just the legal I, side I just thought we have had, you know, we have people in the family who have had these kind of yeah, but I, yeah, and, yeah, but I could, and, and, and uh, I, I can see both sides of it. But, you know, I, uh, I certainly... I'm sympathetic with, with the people who were being told what to do. And my um, guess is they were, they say they were environmentally conscious. I'm sure they were. But, but the homeowner association are trying to get at really, uh, they're not trying to prevent that sort of thing, even though they may be small-minded in that connection. What they're really trying to make sure is that people do tend to their lawn right. in some form or fashion. There is such a thing as just total neglect. And uh, that, the and homeowner... How do you, and how do you... Distinguish those. Okay. And the answer is... Well, that's a good point, but... That's why the law doesn't really work. But, uh, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, look, there's no question that uh, people's views on that are changing. Uh, and right, a lot, of it, a lot of it is purely aesthetic, you know. It's totally aesthetic. It's not purely aesthetic. No, but I mean, uh, uh, in the sense that the, um, the, the benefits to nature and wildlife yeah. are not... Aesthetic, those are real. Yeah, well, okay. no, aesthetic is real too. I mean, look, the, the point just because is, it doesn't look uh, the same way as the you know, yeah, I, turf I, lawn I, looks doesn't the tr- mean the truth is I I suspect again I'd have to get, get more deeply into it. I suspect that there is sometimes it's hard to distinguish between uh, environmental sensi- sensitivity on the one hand and neglect on the other. Uh, look, I I don't believe in homeowner associations at all. What way, any which way. So don't, that's not where I'm coming from. But I'm just saying that if, if I was a homeowner association, which is a scary thought, 
uh, I would be saying, well, uh, you know, I'm not, not an idiot. I'm, I'm sort of environmentally sensible, sensible to some degree. But these people are just, you know, not doing anything. I mean, and it's hard to really work through that, I suspect. Yeah, my point is that uh, I think you could uh, write, I understand your point about neglect, but uh, what people consider, you know, an attractive lawn, an attractive front yard, first of all, it varies all over the world. Where you travel, everybody has had the American front yard, and, uh, you know, there are many beautiful places, so. Well, look, this goes back to what what homeowners associations do or don't do. And, you know, you can go to, uh, they have rules about what color you can paint your house and, uh, you know, whether you can use aluminum siding and all kinds of things. And whether you can hang your lawn, hang your laundry yeah. in your backyard. Right, right. So, uh, as I said, I'm not, I'm not Mr. Lo- uh, Homeowners Association by any means. But uh, it's not as if you can just uh, dismiss them because people do agree by contract to abide by them. And they, they come from a, a place that uh, has something in the way of a, legitimate concern about the way things look. Anyway, um, here's something that kind of floored me. Uh, There's an article that says, uh, in future filled with electric cars, AM radio may be lost in static. A clever play on words by the New York Times. Uh, But what they mean is this, and breaking it down to one sentence, it turns out that electric cars uh, interfere with AM radio. Uh, And as a result, electric cars don't have AM radio. Uh, Tesla doesn't have AM radio. I, I remember Harry telling me about this. I said, I said, what kind of, you know, you listen to the Met game? He said, well, actually, there is no AM radio. And I said, maybe you haven't found it. He said, well, that's possible. Because we <laughs> did have trouble finding the AM radio America, stations not on, the, uh, yes. on our new car. But we did. But, but the point is, he was right. There is no AM radio. And it's because of the, the way the electric cars work, the uh, tremendous power that relies upon from the battery uh, powering the motor that it creates static with AM radio. So uh, they're, they're, the loser in this is AM radio. In other words, they have no trouble selling electric cars uh, to people who are interested. Nobody says, oh, I was going to buy an electric car, but geez, now I can't get you know 10, 10 wins. Uh, that doesn't happen. And, and the people at Tesla and the other manufacturers f- feel that that's, that's, that's a, a nothing burger. They're not concerned about that in the least. The loser, though, is AM radio because people listen to the radio, in particular AM radio, in their cars. And if they start driving cars that don't have AM radio, then you're going to have a, a diminution in the significance of the AM radio business. People are not going to be willing to pay for advertising in AM radio, and you will have no more AM radio down the road. That's what, where this is going. There's no other way. Does there is it, a it fix. Come through the internet or something. No, or but there, there is a fix. You can, they, they can do something, add something to the car, to allow you to get AM radio, and it costs a few dollars. And right now, the manufacturers say we're not interested in spending anything on that, <laughs> anything on that. We don't care about that at all. So. The, the people running Miami are going to have to address this. Those Otherwise, drive time guys better look for uh, you know alternate jobs. Well, the, the article gets into a discussion about who listens to AM radio and why, and it quickly becomes a demographic discussion about older people who's you know. Oh, so maybe the problem will solve itself. Yes, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Who don't matter at all. Uh, or some people say when something's important, I put on AM radio when I need the weather. In a crisis, when I need uh, to hear a news story, you know, uh, serious stuff, AM radio. But that can change. I don't know. But that's kind of shocking. It's a kind of, kind of a funny way 
to spell the end of AM radio. So stay tuned, as we say. In the gotcha. Business. Yeah. Well, this is enraging. Yes. Good. I mean, it's a good thing, but it's just uh, mm-hmm. aspects of it are uh, astonishing. I think. Yeah. A headline on the front of the uh, New York Times: Colleges are resetting tuition after applicants balk yeah. at the costs. And there's a story of Colby Sawyer College, Sawyer College in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. has lowered their official price of tuition for the 2023-24 school year with a drop of about 62%. Yeah. The price of tuition has gone down 62%. Right. It goes to something okay. like 30 so, some odd thousand to, to right. 12,000. So here's the uh, enraging aspects of yeah. it. You know, number one is one of the reasons the prices apparently were so high yeah. for many small schools yeah. is because they wanted to seem like the elites, the, you know, it's like uh, in, this, in the article, they refer to it as the Chivas effect. Yeah. Okay. You expect if you pay more for something, you expect it to be better. Right. Okay. And you're more comfortable. You, you want to spend more because you feel you're getting the better thing. Right. And they won't, uh, you know, won't, they wouldn't be taken seriously as elite colleges mm. <laughs> if they didn't have a high price. Um, but the problem is, uh, you know, with all the all the sense that, it, you know, or the fear that college isn't really worth it, why bother? Yeah. Um, there are fewer and fewer people signing up to go to their school. And some of them are just saying, some of them said, look at that, uh, the price tag and say, no, I'll have to look elsewhere. Now, the other thing is the price wasn't real anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, because they would uh, the schools, you know, the schools would try to say, "Don't worry about you know the prices. We have grants, we have right. you know scholarships, etc." So that people would not be paying that amount. But uh, you know, they well, couldn't convince people that to take that seriously either. So the idea that this is all fabricated it, is it, just it, it, well, let upsetting. Me, let me tell you where they missed the boat on that. Everything you say is true, except. It, the real reason they do it is not in the article. What what colleges do, not only Colby Sawyer, but Yale and Princeton, is they price discriminate. Okay? What do I mean by price discriminate? Uh, one of the most effective ways a seller of goods or services can maximize their profit is by charging, if they can, Everybody who buys their product an individual price, which reflects how much they want it. So in other words, if you, if you go to the supermarket, you might say, I really need a quarter milk. And the price is, I don't know, let's call it the 350 right? Well, if you were interrogated about it, you'd spend $7 if you had to, because you really need a quarter milk. Spend the extra $3, you don't care. But you don't have to get into any kind of bargaining with the people at the grocery store, because they set a price that reflects what they think will be the best result given the range of people who are coming in. So in effect, the whole mass of consumers bargain it down for you implicitly, and you get it at 350 even though you'd be willing to pay $7. Well, there are some goods and services in which, uh, and by the way, price discrimination is illegal, all right? The grocer can't say to you, I'm going to charge you 7 and say to somebody else, I'm going to charge you 5 I'm going to charge you 4 They don't, they can't, it's actually illegal. Uh, we can get into that, but right. Well, well, no, they do bring that up. Analysts say, uh, well, uh, the, the, the colleges like Amherst and Swarthmore can cover the full cost of attendance for low-income students, and they 
I actually don't think they, they rely on wealthy families right. willing to pay full freight right. to fill. But they the don't gap. use the phrase price discrimination because right. no. it's an unpopular right. political thing to say that this is something that if it was a good as opposed to a service would be illegal. And that what they do is they price things in such a way that they manage to get from people at various income levels right. what they're willing to pay for the exact same service. Right. So they say the more elite schools. Yeah, you know, have enough demand, right? That they, well, that, that they can do that. Well, right? these guys, so, and these so guys they're can. not going to be resetting their prices. No. They're not going to be, but they're going to, their but, but they're going to continue to price discriminate. Yeah. So when you go to, if you walk into a classroom again at Yale, whatever, and you ask, uh, every, you know, what's everybody paying for their education? If there are fourteen students, you're going to get fourteen different prices. Right. Yeah. Uh, Colby Sawyer. Same thing, except what Colby Sawyer found out that no one was willing to pay the high end of the prices. So. They just had to bring it down because there was no there there. Nobody's yeah. willing to spend yeah. what they're paying. But, but that's what schools, colleges have been going on, doing all along is price discriminating. And this just shows that uh, at a certain point it's going to fall apart if the demand uh, slackens given the price that's being charged. It's not going to happen at Harvard or Yale, but it is going to happen at Colby Sawyer. And it is shocking that it goes from you know 35000 to fourteen. I mean, it's just amazing. But fourteen was what a lot of people were paying. And to the, you know, and a lot of people are paying 35, were probably ticked off to learn that this was being sold for 14. So uh, it's, you know, they, they, they paint this as the school is kind of being virtuous. They're lowering the cost in response to whatever. But all they're doing is they're sort of ending a period in which they're somewhat deceptive in terms of what they're selling and how they're selling it. It's a deceptive way of marketing something. And they're abandoning that deceptive marketing technique. So it is kind of funny. I think it puts, puts colleges, shines kind of an odd light on colleges. It um, does. Yeah. It, that's what I said. It's, a, it's kind of an enraging article yeah, when yeah. Uh, you look at it closely. And uh, But the sad thing is these schools are still going to have trouble filling their classes. Uh, yeah, but uh, the, the, well, yeah, you're right. And as a matter of fact, the article says that uh, even lowering the uh, tuition hasn't helped them too much. It says that. Right, yeah, right. So, so they're in trouble. Uh, yeah, they're in trouble, which is too bad because yeah. a lot of those uh, schools are great places hmm. to learn. Um, well, quickly, just a couple more art things. Uh, one was there was a nice uh, sort of what I would call an essay under uh, on the Wall Street Journal, their masterpiece section about the adoration of the kings in the snow uh, by Peter Bruegel, the elder. Um, painted in 1563. And uh, it's, uh, you know, at Christmas time especially, you may think a lot about, uh, you know, uh, the religious paintings mm-hmm. that I used to teach, uh, you know, the Annunciation, the Adoration, you know, the three kings coming to mm-hmm. uh, see the newborn baby, mm-hmm. uh, etc. And, uh, you know, for many of them, there's a very specific... Iconography. Mary looks like this. She wears this. There's a certain kind of flower beside her. You know, the the angel stands on this side. The three wise men stand over here, and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, it's uh, very kind of specific. And uh, this painting is um, actually 
a little bit different. It's a, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a street scene that takes place mm-hmm. um, sort of in the contemporary time, you know, the 1560s mm-hmm. uh, that Bruegel is painting. And off to the side, there's, a, you know, there's kind of a ruin and there's a, a couple sitting there with a child and there's sort of three miscellaneous people. It's just a very um, kind of subtle way of expressing the same kind of themes. And let me, uh, I'll just read the last paragraph of uh, the article. The grayness of winter sky, the dreariness of the town, with the evidence of an oppressive military presence and general disregard of the miraculous birth are somehow magically transformed by winter's first snowfall. Bruegel transposes the story to the realities of his time and place and gives us his meditation on a white Christmas. Okay. Uh, then there was also uh, an article in the Wall Street, not in the Wall Street Journal, in the New York Times about repairing the dome of Saint John the Divine. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know Saint John the Divine, the cathedral? I don't know. Do you remember there was a cathedral up in the One um, Fourteenth Street? Yes. That one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, not far from the Hungarian pastry shop. Yes. Etc. Columbia University is also yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. And um, to mention something, that cathedral still not done, still not finished. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't have. It's missing a piece of a transit yeah. transept. It's missing. Uh, its towers aren't complete, etc. And it's had this dome that was built to be temporary. Okay, yeah. um, after thirteen hundred and thirteen years, the temporary uh, roofing at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine has been replaced. Okay, so it's been struggling along. It was never meant to be the dome, but it was all they had, and it's been leaking, it's been repaired, it's been restructured, it's been insulated, still leaking, leaking worse, the insulation's getting soaked. So now, finally, they have spent $17 million to fix this dome. One of the things that will resonate with you is that the original temporary dome was uh, designed and built by um, Raphael uh, Guastavino of the terracotta tiles. Mm -hmm. You know, the terracotta tile work uh, there was um, in the Oyster Bar. Mm -hmm. And in that, uh, there was a restaurant called Guastavino's that was... Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. So, uh, same guys did this temporary dome. It's, even though it was meant to be just a placeholder, Mm. it's kind of beautiful. It's really sort of exquisite. So they fixed it up. Uh, You'll be glad to know. Uh, And it's there. But they still, yeah, I remember there's still more work to be done. But that just reiterates the idea that cathedrals take hundreds of years to build, and this one is no exception. Yeah, sort of on the eastern side of the west side, on the 114th Street. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Eastern part of the west side, yeah. yeah. That's fair, isn't it? <laughs> All right, uh, I'm beginning to hear Hurricane Hazi in the background, but uh, we have just a couple things. Um, you should still be napping. I don't know what's going on. Uh, Mike Leach passed away. Uh, I don't know what to say. A lot to say about Mike Leach. Mike Leach was, though, when you watch the NFL today and see all this passing, uh, it's because of Mike Leach. Uh, Mike Leach uh, was a uh, guy who really changed football. And as often happens, he, the changes were at the college level, and the pros pick up on what goes on at the college level. Like the, You see a lot more running quarterbacks these days and what's called RPOs, run-pass options. 
Uh, offenses change, but those changes stored at the college level. And the pros pay attention to it and copy it. And Mike Leach was s- someone who brought uh, what's called the air raid offense um, to Texas Tech, other schools besides. And uh, every year, his quarterback would be the uh, leading uh, statistical quarterback in the nation because he would just send all these receivers out and they, they ran these intricate patterns and they would pile up a tremendous amount of yardage and they had tremendous success. I mean, he it was, it was a strange personality. People had trouble getting along with him. He was, you know, he's kind of an odd guy. Uh, so he wasn't, he would never be a, a pro coach. Uh, I don't think the pros players would have uh, put up with him too much. And he had his own issues with college players, honestly. But in terms of being a technician, he was a revolutionary, really a visionary in terms of offensive football, if you can use that term, visionary with uh, football, uh, and uh, passed away at the age of 61. So, Say how he died? Uh, it was He had a heart condition. Yeah. All right, well, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, so I also have an obituary, Ali Ahmed Aslam. 77 dies. The restaurateur who created chicken tikka masala. So that's just funny because we eat a lot of chicken tikka masala. And we're well aware that it's not an authentic dish, okay? But it's like, so to speak. I don't think anything we eat. The the headline, the obituary, blank, you know, this fellow name, this fellow's name, Ahmed uh, Aslam, you know. Man who created the chicken tikka masala, like you're saying, man who created that thing on the menu. So, you know, uh, it could have been uh, General the man Cow's who chicken. Latkes. Yeah, the man who invented latkes, right? Well, man of course, created, the, man who created the, French toast. He didn't yeah. necessarily create well, chicken tikka of, masala. Of course, that's going to be but, the story. Uh, yeah. He did. He he emigrated from uh, Pakistan as a yeah. teenager. Yeah. Okay, and uh, to Scotland, All right? And he ends up. Um, Starting a restaurant uh, where um, supposedly the story is that uh, a bus driver popped in for a meal, said the chicken tikka was too spicy and too dry. Could they do something to moisten it up a bit? And uh, Ali Aslam allegedly threw together some tomato sauce, quick tomato sauce, and the rest is history. The rest is history. So, you know, um, I think everyone accepts that uh, there are many stories to how uh, chicken tikka masala uh, started out, but nonetheless, we're pretty, we're, you know, thankful for him, uh, and uh, he had, uh, you know, a great success in uh, restaurants. People loved his restaurants, and uh, you know, um, you know, uh, he also was, I guess, part of the whole wave of um, the developing of British curry houses. Do you know anything about curry no. houses? Well, I, I know was, everybody in Great Britain I, eats curry. And whenever we watch one of these British television shows, they say, I'll, I'll make a curry. Right, that's true. <laughs> but it's also true that there is such a thing as a curry house and they're apparently like open into the wee hours. Uh-huh. So when the pub closes, you stumble over to the curry house to, uh, you know, get something to eat. Really? 
Yeah, I, I see them in the, you know, the detective mysteries oh. that I read. People, okay. Someone's always dropping by, you know, getting a bite at the curry This house. is your, your secret life. Your, yes, all right, all got right. it. So, um, so anyway, um, so he has uh, passed away, but they say, you know, what people really remember him is uh, not as an inventor, but uh, as um, a restaurateur who welcomed them and made them feel at home. And so yet the headline Ali says, Ahmed Aslan. Inventor of chicken tikka And, and indeed, uh, on uh, last Thursday when I was in Washington at Rasika's, Sadie ordered. Chicken tikka masala? Yes. In, as in homage? No, it's, just, it's her thing. When she eats Indian food, that's one of the things she eats. All right. So finally, uh, there's an article about... Uh, Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin, the ex-coach of the Giants, won two Super Bowls with the Giants, uh, and his reputation being a strict disciplinarian, maybe even a difficult guy, maybe even a throwback football coach, uh, a little hard-headed, maybe not the most reasonable guy in the world. That's the reputation. And somehow he managed to uh, establish enough of rapport with his players that uh, he ended up being a successful coach for the Giants when it looked like he was not going to be successful. He's written a book called The Giant Win about the team's first Super Bowl victory in his tenure in 2007, which he uh, acknowledges in the book was highly unexpected. The team wasn't thought to be that good. Matter of fact, he described it as the biggest Super Bowl upset of all time. It's worth writing about. But what makes Coughlin interesting, he's written a couple of very interesting articles in the Times, very contemplative, very thoughtful about various things, about issues that go far beyond football. He's been retired for several years. And the interview is not so much about, well, it is It is important about his book called The Giant Win. Maybe I'll have to read that. I don't know. But the, even the book goes beyond the football game to be, as described here, a contemplative memoir uh, that includes Coughlin's assessment of a life of triumphs, personal lapses, and lessons learned. And they focus here about uh, the death of his wife. His wife uh, suffered from uh, supranuclear palsy, an incurable brain disorder that arose the ability to walk, speak, think, and control body movements. And Coughlin, Tom Coughlin was her principal caretaker for the last couple of years. And he certainly reflects on that uh, in the interview. I mean, in his normal, uh, thoughtful right. way. That's one of the things they ask. Yeah. Is they, they, they do refer to that he never took a day off. Yeah. And uh, he says, well, thinking back on it. That was a mistake. I wish I had spent more time with my wife. Yeah. 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 Uh, but he also, uh, I thought it was cute the way he said he, he kind of thanked uh, Michael Strahan and Eli Manning for coming to his defense. Yeah, he said, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's said, a funny exchange. The question is, can, uh, you know, what can, can the, your uh, public image as a strict disciplinarian be altered is the question. Uh, the implication being that being a strict disciplinarian is a negative thing. Like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Certainly the reporter thought so. And he says, I'm not sure, but I do know that players like Strahan and Manning and others have been very good ambassadors on my behalf when questions about me come up, and I appreciate that. Uh, you know, he comes across as extremely uh, impressive, but he also makes the point here, frankly, with a serious point that shouldn't get lost. I don't know where he comes up with the number, but I'm sure it's a large number. He says 50 million people serve as caretakers in the way he was a caretaker for his wife. Yeah. 
you know, for yeah. elderly spouses, relatives of one way or the other. And he talks about how terribly taxing it is, how exhausting it was, yeah. uh, how he couldn't really do anything else and how draining uh, the experience is. Uh, and uh, he said he had some help because he has the money. Mm-hmm. But many people don't. And, you know, we went yeah. that, through that a little bit. And uh, it's true. Right. It's tough. All right. So in any event, uh, great Christmas. We're looking forward to an exciting New Year's. We are going to the Broadway Theater tonight to see... Funny Girl. And we will give a report on Funny Girl next week. In the meantime, uh, and that will be after the New Year. So uh, Merry Christmas, we say at the outset. But now, Happy Goodbye. New Year. 2022 and welcome 2023 yeah. uh, and we'll see you next year that's right this is Tamsin Granger and Dan Abuhoff Tamsin Dan read the paper <laughs>